0: From PRX's Radiotopia, this is the Memory Palace. Welcome to the final episode of the season, brought to you all summer by Squarespace, your all-in-one website-making platform. If you haven't checked it out, please do so. Go to squarespace.com and sign up to make your free trial website. And when you do, use offer code MEMORY to get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com. Use offer code MEMORY. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Squarespace helping us retrofit the foundation and get the Memory Palace up to code once and for all. The Palace is set to reopen its doors for five weeks in the fall with new stories, starting the week of October 19th. Then again for another ten stories, one a week, starting in January. That's the plan as of now. And if you're wondering what to do with your time while you wait for the next season, uh, I have a suggestion. I want you to go to radiotopia.fm. And I want you to find your new favorite podcast. It's there. I promise you. So go to radiotopia.fm where you'll find handpicked episodes of Benjamin Walker's Theory of Everything, of the illusionist, of the heart, of mortified, of the truth, of song exploder, of strangers, of love and radio, of fugitive waves, of radio diaries, of criminal, and of 99% invisible. And just start clicking. You won't want to stop. It has been an extraordinary thing to make this season, um, to tell these stories to you. And uh, now I'm going to hole up and figure out the fall. And in the meantime, um, if you want to help me out, there are some things you can do. Um, you can write a review and or rate it on iTunes. And it's kind of a weird thing to ask you to do, but it is weirdly important to the podcast game. Uh, you can take a survey at surveynerds.com slash palace Uh, You can follow me on Twitter, at The Memory Palace. You can make a donation. You could buy a t-shirt at thememorypalace.us. But perhaps the best thing you can do is to tell someone about the podcast. Share your favorite episode. Blog about it. Tweet it. Skywriting is good. Whatever. And thanks. Here's episode 75. The Ballad of Captain Dwight. This is The Memory Palace. I'm Nate DiMeo. One white, one Asian, one Negro. That was Kennedy's dream for the moon. He liked the sound of it, like what it would say one day, a decade or so out. Like what it would say to the world when an American rocket took three American men from different backgrounds to a whole other world. The people of Earth would look up to the sky and see the American melting pot, see all the peoples of the world represented The people who are white or African-American or Asian, anyway. It was a dream. A dream we are told he had as a new president at a particularly dreamy, particularly brief moment in his brief presidency, when he could say July and August cannot be too hot, and half expected to be so. So he sent his people out to find him a Negro.
1: Spent most of my youth uh, at Fairfax Airport.
0: That is Edward Dwight. When the Kennedy administration put the word out that it wanted a black pilot in the astronaut training program, someone who met all the same military and academic and physical criteria that were being applied to white candidates, there were very few people to choose from. And something like flight time was hard to accrue if they wouldn't let you fly. There may have only been one choice. Eddie Dwight grew up in a rural neighborhood just outside of Kansas City. He spent his time drawing. He loved art which was good because there wasn't a lot there in town for a kid. The library, and the airstrip that sat on the bend of the Missouri River. His dad played the outfield, some second base for the Kansas City Monarchs, one of the greatest teams in the Negro Leagues. So his dad would be gone half of every summer, playing away games in distant cities. So Ed's mom would walk him down to the airport to get him out of the house and watch the planes. Mostly old biplanes on their way to or from some hunting trip.
1: I would clean out all their, all their beer bottles that they were drinking while they were flying and, and all the blood and guts from the, from the meat that they were bringing back and, and they'd give me a nickel or a dime. And as I got a little older, I didn't want any money. I just wanted them to take me
0: up in an airplane. In one day, he was about eight or nine, it's hard to remember now, someone took him for a ride and picked this earthbound boy up and showed him what the world looked like beyond his little corner of Missouri.
1: Kind of satisfied the the main question. I don't know where those guys were going when they took off and I I didn't have any idea where they had been when they landed. So uh, so my curiosity was very, very high as to how how far you could go and how fast you could go and how easy it was to get there.
0: He spent most of the rest of his life figuring that out in one way or the other. So young Eddie Dwight loved two things, art and planes. And he spent a lot of time in the library trying to combine the two, looking through the stacks for pictures of planes that he could copy. he find a book about the German Luftwaffe and another, a whole set actually.
1: There was a set of military flying manuals and I, and I would take these things home and I would work all of the, uh, the lessons and at the end of every lesson they, they had the answers to the questions. So I did this for probably four years, not even thinking about it, but it was my private little world that, that nobody else was
0: involved in. And that's how he'd spend his time, drawing Focke-Wulf fighter planes, Messerschmitt bombers, and learning the math and physics that they weren't teaching him at his Catholic school by working problems in the back of these books. He had a couple paper routes too.
1: For the black paper and one for the white paper in Kansas City there. And uh, one morning, I was throwing my paper and on the front of the Kansas City Call, which was a black newspaper, was a, a guy by the name of Dayton Raglan, who was from Kansas City, Missouri, and he was standing on a wing of, of a jet, and he had been shot
0: down.: Over Korea in 1953.
1: And, and he was about five, four, which is about as tall as I am, a little bitty guy. And, and, and this black guy was flying airplanes and jets, no less, and it just blew the lid off of things. So I I applied for pilot training, and lo and behold, I got accepted.
0: (laughs) So if you talk to Ed Dwight, this happens a lot. The story tends to go too far too fast, in rockets from an impulse or a dream that Ed had of doing something to Ed doing that thing. Memory, like your side mirror, tends to compress distance. So before he could get accepted into pilot training, He had to find a recruiter who wouldn't scoff at the idea of this black kid flying jets. And when he did, the guy scoffed at his size and a stutter he was carrying around at the time. So Dwight wrote to the Pentagon, demanded that they send someone to his college to test out black recruits, and someone came.
1: So they ended up sending 33 of us to Denver.
0: They'd all passed the physical exams back in Kansas City, and now it was time for classwork a long, rigorous written exam.
1: Finished the test in about 20 minutes, and the guy says, oh, it's too hard for you, huh?
0: What they didn't realize, besides the fact that, you know, the toy was super smart, was that he had taken this test dozens and dozens of times.
1: The manuals that I was taking home every day were the exactly, exactly the same test that I was taking, and I had those things memorized. So, so anyway, they, they thought I was some kind of boy genius, of course.
0: And here... Let's just go too far too fast. Next thing, Ed Dwight, who couldn't get a recruiter to take him seriously, was finding out just how far he could go as a black pilot in the United States Air Force at the beginning of the 1960s.
1: I had a great job. I was flying five different airplanes. They sent me to every school that they could possibly think of. Put me on fast track. I made captain early, and they put me in for major the day I made captain. I was that special black guy, and the only one in the whole organization, and they they just told me up front that I'd, you know, that I'd end up being a general, uh, whether I liked it or not. So I had a wonderful life.
0: And then Kennedy sent forth his bannerman in search of the Negro astronaut. And a letter arrived from the White House.
1: This is an opportunity, it said, uh, to become the first Negro astronaut. You know, could him possibly end up being one of the greatest aviators that ever lived and some silly stuff like that.
0: He says the whole thing just sounded ridiculous. It's
1: my pleasure to introduce to you, the nation's Project Mercury astronauts, Malcolm S. Carpenter, Leroy G. Cooper, John H. Glenn. Uh, The seven astronauts had been announced, okay? And they were the heroes, okay? And I did not fancy myself, the way the white system works, that ain't never gonna happen. Because if you look at the history of how blacks have been involved in, in the military, you know, they, they were truck drivers in Europe, and they built highways in Alaska, and they did, you know, I mean, they did everything. Now, the Tuskegee Airmen was an experiment, and when they got over there, they, they'd sit on the ground for forever before the white commanders would let them in the air. My The idea of ha- having a black astronaut uh, w- with, with seven heroes and the whole entire political system was couched in NASA itself. The livelihood of NASA was based... On putting man in the loop and having it all white men. So the idea that you could put a black guy and, and superimpose him into that loop without the whole thing caving in on itself, uh, American public walking away because you say, oh, you got, you got to be kidding. You're talking about putting up, oh my God, <laughs> putting an N word guy in space. Are you out of your brain? Because you put one black guy or a woman, even got get close to it, that means that anybody can do it.
0: He talked to his commander who advised him to tear up the letter because why should he rock the boat? Things were really good for him where he was. He was the one black guy. Surely going to be a general someday. But...
1: Uh, my mom was a civil rights activist and yada 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 and I called my mom and told her, I said, oh my gosh, you gotta, you gotta do this, you gotta
0: do this. And then he went back to his commander. I said, look, I,
1: I think I want to do this and he said, you're crazy. Yeah, uh, you know, and I said something stupid like, "Well, if I do this, I can help my people."
0: There's so much hindsight packed into that statement, and venom seeping out from the corners even. And I pushed him on it. This was space. This was the thick of the civil rights movement. And there's a letter from the president on your desk, saying you could be one of the greatest aviators of all time, a world historical figure, the kind of man that gets turned into a statue and you just scoffed? But he stands by it, says he was skeptical from the get-go. But there were practical reasons, beyond uplift, beyond history, beyond the movement, that pushed him toward it, yes. Worst case, he figured, he'd get more training. He'd get to be a test pilot. He'd get to fly the fastest jets in the world, even if he was never really going to fly a spaceship. And there were practical reasons for the White House, too, of course. It wasn't just some fantasy cooked up in Camelot. The black vote helped Kennedy beat Nixon. He was going to need that vote again in a few years. And so Ed Dwight became the first African-American candidate for the astronaut program, with a spot carved out for him in a classroom at Edwards Air Force Base in the Antelope Valley in Southern California. But first there were photo shoots and magazine covers, newspaper articles, fan mail, hate mail, marriage proposals. He was already married
1: all this publicity got out and I was doing parades all around the country because this black astronaut guy had been announced. (laughs) So I'm up here enjoying the parades and all that crazy stuff. I got down there a week later.
0: And in that week, while he was in that whirlwind, he says his classmates were getting instructions from Chuck Yeager, the war hero, the test pilot's test pilot, the first man to go faster than the speed of sound.
1: So Yeager called everybody in uh, the, even the new students, my fellow students, into the auditorium at the Tespada School. And, and he said, listen, Kennedy is trying to cram an N-word down our throats. And if he graduates, all of you are going to lose your jobs. And his metaphor was, look what happened to baseball when Jackie Robinson uh, integrated it. No, you got all those black guys up there playing baseball. And they are, they're the stars now. And this is coming from somebody who was sitting in the room. This is not third or fourth hand. He has to quit of his own volition. We can't fire him or the, or the White House to get really mad. So don't talk to him, don't socialize with him, don't have him over to your house, don't drink with him, uh, don't do anything with him. And he told the instructors not to instruct me.
0: And that's what happened, he says. For months, he was blocked out cold-shouldered, and worse. But over and over, officials from the White House came to check in and intervene on Dwight's behalf, which made some people resent him all the more, made them more certain that he didn't belong there, that he was nothing more than a token. But others he said weren't so bad. They realized that he wasn't so bad. And whatever the reason, fair or unfair, they saw that Dwight was Kennedy's guy. He was being limoed around to speech after speech. Picture day would roll around. And the other trainees would wait in line to sit on a stool in front of a little pull-down backdrop and say cheese for the staff photographer. while well, there were 32 photographers from all over the world waiting in line for Dwight. He was Kennedy's Negro astronaut, and everyone talked about it.
1: The word is that Dwight is going to NASA and then to the moon.
0: Even he kind of believed it at that point.
1: So now everybody's sneaking around the back door trying to be my friend. And they don't mind meeting me at the club for a drink, you know, and <laughs> they don't mind sneaking me and have my old lady come over for coffee. And it was working good for me until on November 22, 1963. Good afternoon,
0: ladies and gentlemen. You'll excuse the fact that I'm out of breath, but about 10 or 15 minutes ago, a tragic thing, from all indications, at this point has happened in the city of Dallas. Let me quote to you this. Where Ed Dwight was when he heard that John F. Kennedy was shot, was in a mission simulator somewhere outside of Seattle pretending to fly to the moon.
1: And and I knew it was over. I knew it was over, over and done.
0: And that would be as close as he got. That was a Friday, you might remember. He got back to work on Monday and found a letter.
1: And I had orders shipping me out of the country. I'm still in training, and they gave me orders shipping me to Germany, of all places. And my my job in Germany, I was gonna be the American liaison for the German space program.
0: Which didn't exist
1: it didn't exist,
0: right? Uh. Dwight didn't go to Germany. Instead, he borrowed a jet. You could just do that if you were an astronaut trainee. And flew across the country. And went to the White House. You could just do that if you were Ed Dwight. And talked to Ted Kennedy just a few days after his brother was murdered. You could do that too, I guess. Teddy said there was nothing he could do. And that was that. It wasn't exactly that but we can rocket forward again. Fly over the last few years of Edward Dwight's military service. The story of how he was passed over for the next phase of astronaut training. How he had started to speak out about what he saw as discrimination. How President Johnson wanted him out. Wanted his own black astronaut. That's what Dwight was told. How he finally quit in 66. There's an article in Ebony lays out the whole thing. The reporting is impressive. It shows a clear pattern of discrimination on the parts of various government agencies and a pattern of denying discrimination on the parts of various government agencies. It has people saying that a great candidate was being forced out and people saying that candidate never deserved to be there in the first place. It tells of Dwight's divorce and his remarriage and his second divorce. It tells of daily harassment, housing discrimination, a brick through his living room window, a shower of glass coming down on his daughter's head. There were official inquiries. People came out to defend Chuck Yeager. They still do. But all of that is addendum and context. The story ended years before, on November 22, 1963. So what do you do next? what do you do when you were once this close to the moon? To being one of history's undeniables. A name for the ages. A statue. A monument. Sometimes you go back to the start.
1: Okay, this is the we're working on now. This is the, uh, uh, the, the history memorial for the state of Texas. And, uh, it's a, uh, starts in, uh,
0: 15, Fred Dwight was art and this is everything that he is in his early 80s now he works just about every day he's a sculptor has been all his life in a way since he built models of airplanes he later went on to fly but he's been making art for a living since about 1974 he had a friend then George Brown a Tuskegee Airman and the first black lieutenant governor of Colorado not too hard to figure out why those two got along and Brown saw some of Dwight's art and bought a couple of small pieces and then offered him a job.
1: And he says, Ed, uh, they want to do a sculpture of me for the Capitol building as the first black lieutenant governor.
0: It said he didn't know how to do that. He wasn't that kind of sculptor. George Brown told him to get a book. And Ed Dwight was pretty good at figuring out how to do things from books. Forty years later, he's made more than 100 public monuments of black historical figures. Rosa Parks. Frederick Douglass, Hank Aaron, multiple Martin Luther Kings. In town squares and statehouse lawns many in cities where it used to be that the only memorials were bronze Confederates on bronze horses. Now he worries a little bit that he might have more commissions than he'll be able to get around to. He is in his eighties. He's finishing one up now. It's 26 feet long, and set for the lawn of the Capitol building in Austin. It depicts 500 years of the African-American experience there in Texas. It starts with a slave, the manservant of a Spanish explorer from 1528. And on the far end is Bernard Harris, a Texan and an astronaut. He was the first African-American to do a spacewalk in 1995, 20 years after Guy Bluford became the first black American in space in 1983 some 20 years after Kennedy set his people out to find a Negro.